0: Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at Yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Seeking to make agriculture more profitable and food systems more resilient across the globe, Climate AI, a startup based in the San Francisco Bay Area, is applying artificial intelligence techniques to climate and agronomic data. With precise weather modeling and seed genetic insights, Climate AI's machine learning systems can help farmers understand the long-term suitability of specific crops for a given region, forecast pest and disease pressure, and identify hybrids and varieties that will perform For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment, Himanshu Gupta, CEO and founder of Climate AI, joins us to talk about how his company measures heat risk and drought risk, and turns those into what he calls the Planting Risk Index, a metric that can help growers make better operational decisions for their farms. Thank you so much for joining me today, and could you just start by introducing yourself and giving me a little bit about your background?
1: Uh, my name is Iman Gupta. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Climate AI. We've been running Climate AI for the last uh, four years, started out of dorms at Stanford University with my co-founder, Max, who is son of a farmer himself uh, and comes from Ecuador. Turns out he has spent uh, a lot of his uh, time uh, on farms with his dad, mm-hmm. selling papayas and, and pineapples uh, to European food companies and, uh, and then uh, is an AI nerd. And I came from a um, climate background, having spent almost 14 years now working in the field of climate change, all the way from both in public and private sector. Um, I was in the government of India, where I was responsible for modeling emissions for the Paris Climate Accord for India, and then worked with the government of Brazil, Mauritius, US, UK, and whatnot. So I've not done anything in my life but worked in the field of climate change. So uh, turns out I was a climate and nerd and Max was an AI nerd. And that's how the company Climate AI got started. And before that, I come from uh, a small village in the north of India myself, where I remember like, um, even if you get as a kid, if you get two or three hours of drinking water supply in a day, that's your lucky day. And every time there will be a deficit in monsoon rainfall during summers. That's when, you know, most of our aquifers will get recharged and most of the drinking water supply would come from. So every time where, the, you know, if there's a variability or deficit in the monsoon rainfall, either along when the monsoons arrive, uh, or the first rain, as we call it, or the in, the amount of rainfall during the season, you know, there'll be like even less uh, drinking water available. And I remember like traveling with my family to fetch water from a neva River uh, every third or fourth day. So, uh, and that's why climate change as a problem is very close to my heart. And to my home, quite literally.
0: Tell me a little bit more about Climate AI, uh, what your goals are, and how you're going about that.
1: We started Climate AI as a climate resilience platform for food and agriculture supply chains. And what does the resilience mean is we are seeing more and more impacts of climate change, basically, like risk, like droughts, heat waves, wildfires, and its impact on crop quality, crop yield, and as well as crop safety. And this is not just a long-term issue, it's a near-term issue, where the, if you remember the, the planting season in, in, in the Midwest in 2018, mm-hmm. where there were massive floods, or right now we're in the middle of a drought in California, or we call it the mega drought, or, you know, I can go on and on about, you point your finger at any point part of the globe, or the agriculture system there, you'll see like that system suffering from both the short-term and the long-term impacts of climate change. So what we do is uh, through our platform, we predict the risk of you know these extreme weather for a particular crop and its impact on the yield quality uh, of that crop, so that you know, all the stakeholders in that crop supply chain can make can take actionable decisions to reduce this risk in the short term as well in the long term.
0: Okay. So tell me a little bit more about the decreases that we're seeing in yield, quality and safety, especially that last one. I'm not sure if I understand that.
1: Yeah. So there is around you, you might have heard of a term called aflatoxins. And aflatoxins are the enzymes uh, produced uh, in reaction to drought risk, drought and heat stress mm-hmm. uh, by corn and groundnuts, especially in the uh, in, during the months of May and June. So if you have an overlap of drought risk and heat risk simultaneously, the crops produces enzymes um, as a response to a possible fungal attack on the crop. These aflatoxins, as we call it, uh, or mycotoxins or aflatoxins, they, once they get into the food system, uh, it's very hard to detect them. So um, I need to check the exact numbers, but almost one third of the cases of liver cancer globally are caused by mycotoxins and aflatoxins in the food system. Oh, because typically, uh, if you have a contamination in food system, it can get detected at the farm gate. We even have like multiple sampling procedures and whatnot. But then these uh, mycotoxins or like contaminants, even in small quantities, which is less than 2 ppm, can be very dangerous in the food system and they can go undetected in the, in the supply chain. Mm. So, in fact, there have been cases where corn is also used as a feedstock for cattle. And remnants of these mycotoxins and are also found in the milk supply. Okay. Which is why I mentioned like, um, it's, the, it's not just a question of decreasing crop yield, it's also a question of decreasing crop nutrition as well as, as safety um, of food system.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have definitely heard of aflatoxins, especially in regard to it affecting the livestock that eat the feed. But I didn't know that there was carryover to humans as well. So that's a very interesting um, bit of information. And then, um, so I understand that historically climate change has uh, been responsible, or at least recently been responsible for some decreases in yield.
1: Yes. So when you read those projections coming from, from academics that um, by 2050, globally agriculture yields were decrease by 30% on average um, because of climate change. I think this data hides more than it reveals. Hmm. Um, and the reason being 30% on average yield might not look as big. But then, on a year or year-by-year year basis, um, um, or a season-by-season season basis, it could be basically a matter of like life and death for a farmer. And we have seen that those cases in Madagascar right now. We have seen those cases in in India, primarily if one, you know, if there is, uh, for example, in India, there have been a lot of cases where farmers commit suicides if there is a dry season, primarily because farmers don't think they'll be able to repay their loans the operating loans that they undertake, hoping that the cotton yield will be high. Uh, when that is not the case, they prefer like, I mean, suicides rather than like live with, a, uh, you know, uh, ignominy. Uh, as I said, like this 30% um, average might seem pretty less for the overall speak of things, but on a year by year basis, what we are seeing the volatility is increasing. So if I lose my years by 40, 50% or I lose my crops, you know, by 70%, that reduces my resilience or the capacity to bounce back next year. Now, if the next is also bad, then basically I'm looking at either leaving the farming as a profession for good or declaring bankruptcy. Oh, very interesting.
0: OK, yeah. And I'm kind of curious about the yields. I've, I feel like every time I see yield data for the U.S., it's, you know, like, oh, average corn crops are going up and up and up. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with genetics. So is a lot of the yield decrease that's more of
1: a global problem than specific to the U.S.? I think um, yield decrease, it's, it's both a systemic issue as, as well as an idiosyncratic issue, right? Systemic because we know like uh, along the entire temperate belt, there would be some risk like the, the yields of corn are going down on an average, right? So if, you, if I have a very simple model where I uh, input soil type, uh, genetics, temperature, precipitation, the output is yield, I'll see like with the current... Uh, with the future projections uh, of temperature precipitation, uh, like my yields will go down on a blanket basis. But then it's, it's a regional issue because it depends a lot more on like how well can a farmer respond uh, to this season-to-season volatility of climate. So in many regions where you have uh, good uh, seed genetics available, bred for that local microclimate, they will respond a lot better. The yield decrease will be lower there. In many many regions where they have good financial infrastructure where they are getting, you know, loans for four, five, six years to make transition to a more resilient farming, they are seeing less uh, impact on the yields. And third is, if they are following some resilient practices on soil health, uh, you know, no-till farming, um, as well as using drip irrigation and whatnot, then they're also seeing less impact. So it's a systemic issue, but the, the response to that is a very regional issue as well.
0: Okay, I see. So can you give some more examples of some sort of, I guess, management changes or practices that would be things that would be targeted for farmers or ranchers who are facing those kind of climate changes?
1: Yeah. So the way I think about practices is based on like data, number one. Number two is data inputs as as well as financial infrastructure. So when it comes to data, it's important to understand what is the risk that your farm is facing. So typically when we used to talk to farmers uh three or four years ago the kind of response that we especially in california will get used to get is like i know once in a 10 year would be a bad year for me and that's the cost of doing business but now based on our work that we showed to them that you know for example in california the number of chill hours available for growing nut crops like uh, pistachios almonds is decreasing Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not like a once in a ten-year event. It's becoming like it's it's in a permanent state of decline, mm-hmm. right? You need to first understand using data what is it that you are dealing with. Understand the risk. Number two is understand on the data front how can you reduce this risk. You can reduce this risk using more early warning systems. Which is if you are using if you, if you are seeing like a higher probability of um, a drought and a heat wave simultaneously getting together, that, that might impact your planting dates. Uh, then you should be planting like late in the season, rather than early in the season, and should be planting like an early season variety or a late season variety. Like late season varieties rather than an early season variety, right? So based on the information you get from the data systems, you can make decisions that can help you still react to those risks coming up on a season to season basis. The second, this is like on, a, on an operational basis. On a long term basis, based on the data, you need to decide whether, what can you grow on this land anymore? If I'm growing, let's say, this variety of corn, should I be moving to a more drought-tolerant, heat-tolerant variety of corn, which might not give me results this year, but I know in the next five years, my overall returns will be higher. Mm-hmm. Um, because my, my region is going to see a lot more of drought and heat waves during the time of planting, during the time of pollination, during the time of harvesting, and, and so have you. So mm-hmm. data is the first thing. Second is I said like inputs. So based on the data, you'll identify whatever risk you can reduce using early warning systems. The rest of the risk has to be reduced using better inputs. The inputs, as I've mentioned, could be in the form of better, uh, you know, irrigation systems, better drainage practices systems in, in, inside the farm, as we saw uh, during 2018 floods uh, in the U.S. Midwest, or like uh, uh, optimizing your water use efficiency. If you are in a drought-prone system, it's much more practical to use drip irrigation uh, or techniques which helps you optimize your water use efficiency uh, on the farm. And by the way, which is also significant sustainability benefits where you can get paid more um, by the food companies for showing like better outcomes on sustainability. And third is financial infrastructure, right? So making sure that, you know, I I think more and more of uh, lenders are coming up with long term financing plans. So how do we help farmers? Like I know about Ravo has launched a scheme. Where they're helping farmers um, invest for a long term on their farmlands um, portfolio. Either you want to go organic, you want to do follow re- regenerative practices, or you want to follow other climate resilient practices. So where the return expectation is not two or three years, uh, but it's like the next five years or 10 years. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you have, you know, you're talking to the bankers. Uh, about those loans available. So all these three systems together can help a farm become more resilient.
0: And I want to back up just a little bit. We've been talking about farming practices and how all this data can impact decisions that farmers are making. But I want to just back up and talk a little bit more about how climate AI is actually populating that data. You said that uh, you've been involved in AI for a long time. Just talk about how that works with climate data. Four years is a, a great length of time that you've been doing this, but so far, that's not long-term results yet. So I'm curious how you're sort of tracking results of of your artificial intelligence
1: inputs. Great question. So um, I'll give you one specific example. We directly don't work with farmers, but we work with agribusinesses around farmers who deploy our platform uh, with farmers. So one specific case is, is that of a seed company called Pacific Seeds. They are based in Australia, but they are part of the portfolio of, uh, of you know, the third largest agrochemical company in the world called UPL. So what Australia is seeing is a lot more of drought stress and heat stress during the time of planting, uh, especially in Northern Queensland and Southern Queensland. And because of which their customers, the customers of seed companies are farmers, are having trouble adapting to these stresses based on the existing seed varieties available uh, and based on the information that they have available. So... What our platform does is it takes in. Um, I'll talk about how it, how the AI functions here, but it takes in into a, a drought risk and the heat risk at the start at the time of planting to to the time of harvesting. puts it together into a nice metric that farmers can readily understand, which is a planting risk index. Okay. So when is it that you should be planting? Should you be planting two weeks from now, four weeks from now, and five weeks from now for whatever probability? Uh, is something that farmers can get in a very tangible format uh, on the dashboard. But also, they can uh, input their phone numbers, and you know, they, the alert will go to their phones as well. That okay, the next two or three weeks are looking good for planting, or not looking good for planting. Based on that, the the seed company, um, if the farmers become like more resilient, they see like better uh, yield outcomes because they planted the right windows. The seed company is already seeing uh, some better outcomes for themselves because based on whatever decisions farmers make. Uh, they want to ensure that they have the right inventory in the sales channels uh, in Northern Queensland versus Southern Queensland. So based on a platform deployment over last year, the seed company saw like a 5 to 10% increase in sales for their seeds. And it's based on like helping uh, the seed company and the customers of the seed company, which in this case are farmers, understand when is the right time to plant based on the risk like, coming up for, for the next one month, two months, and the next three months. And that's one. But mind you, like no one has a crystal ball in agriculture and in climate. One of the value on which this company was set up was the value of trust. We take it very seriously. In fact, you can look at our website and trust is something that drives our digital regime making, but also as to how we work with our customers. So if we think that the models are not good enough to make any actionable recommendations, we are very upfront with our uh, customers on that front. Mm-hmm. However, the question is, What is the current way of doing things, which is historical averages uh, or a cool weather forecast, that's it. And how do we compare as compared to uh, those state-of-the-art models that the farmers use or the seed companies use. And what we have found is um, uh, using historical averages, we we could be anywhere from 10% to 150% better. Now what that means is like if I'm uh, showing that uh, based on my probabilities uh there's a 60% probability or 70% probability of a farmer getting high yields if they were to plant in the next 2 weeks that's a good enough decision making framework what is i'm saying that it is a 10 to 20% probability then that is something which is not usable at all so if you want to use historical averages the uncertainty is very high and which is why farmers resort to like sticking to business as usual uh, the way they make decisions anyway mm-hmm. uh, but if we can improve the reliability of this data to a level that farmers can make actionable decisions. And again, there are some risks still, but if you were to take decisions for the next four or five growing seasons, on an average, they'll see like a lot better outcomes uh, for their farms. And then the second part of the question is like, how do we make it possible using AI? Which is ties back to the point number one, which I mentioned around, can we make these predictions reliable enough? So if you look at weather forecast, weather forecast tend to lose their effectiveness after a week or 10 days. That's number one. And number two, they are not tailor-made for uh, consumption for a farmer. Like, I don't care about precipitation. I don't care about just temperature. Tell me what is going to be the soil moisture forecast. That is very useful for me. Tell me what kind of seed I can plant. That is very useful for me, like the the actual disease. So one of the reasons why weather forecasts don't do well after 7 days or 10 days is because these forecasts are based on the supercomputer-based models run by NOAA in the U.S. European center or space agency in the US and in Europe, and every country has their own weather models that they Mm -hmm. use. Weather models fail to take into account the Mm -hmm. impact of oceanic circulations on a particular region beyond two weeks. Is it oceanic circulations uh, that drive the variability in weather beyond two weeks at any particular location. So you might have heard of these two oceanic circulations called El Nino and La Nina. And there are tens of them A combined influence of these 10 oceanic circulations will drive what is going to be the probability of a heat wave or a drought for this season in in this part of the world or not, depending upon how much close to the ocean they are or not. So what we did was, uh, through our machine learning model, the same techniques that is used by self-driving car industry, uh, you have thousands of images coming to a car and the algorithm of the car is detecting the pedestrian in that image and making probabilistic judgments around whether the pedestrian is going to move left or right. We flip the problem for climate, where we said that instead of consider the state of Earth's weather as, a, as an image. So just like in a normal image, you have red RGB or red, green, blue as a fundamental pixels, components of a pixel. In the climate image, you'll have temperature, pressure and wind speed as a fundamental components of that pixel. So because we are basically mapping the entire world, including oceans, we are able to incorporate the oceanic data into our models uh, on top of uh, the models supplied by NOAA and in European Center. And the beauty of that is just like in a normal image, you're detecting a pedestrian, in a time series of climate images, you're detecting and development of a heat wave over a particular location. So that was the innovation that led us with an outcome, which was a forecast which was cheaper, faster, and better than anything out there. We... So innovation was developed at Stanford University. We filed patents on that. Um, we have four patents on the technology. Uh, in fact, we also won a grant from National and Foundation to deploy this technology globally. And this technology is what is powering our reliable forecast and decision making tools for farmers.
0: Wow. Well, that is extremely complicated, <laughs> but it, it sounds really exciting, especially in terms of really being able to forecast for microclimates. I, don't, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, that's what you're saying. I mean, you can really dial this into a very specific area.
1: Yes. You know, we can go into like at a farm level, uh, at a point level, mm-hmm. or we could be at a uh, region level as well. It's all the factor of how much data is available. Yeah. And typically, the, the customers we work with, they also share uh, the data from their own weather station networks. If that data is available, then we can exactly point point at that point level forecast uh, and the decision making based on that farm.
0: So, I think I understood you to say that you're working with the companies that are serving the farmers, but it sounds like this platform is available to farmers directly. Are they paying a fee for that platform? And when they're giving you their data from their weather stations, is that something that is there a fee structure involved or some sort of business arrangement?
1: So as I mentioned, we don't directly sell to farmers. Um, we have partnerships with uh, seed companies who in turn are deploying this platform with farmers. I see. So one specific example there is, is the same uh, of that company called Pacific Seeds. In partnership with Pacific Seeds, we have launched a platform called Skip. And that platform is available for um, farmers in Australia. And it's the same platform that a seed company uses, but that platform has a lot of decision making tools on the farm for farmers in terms of uh, planting risk, harvesting risk spraying risk, and then soil moisture forecast, humidity forecast, delivered at a very farm level, uh, either to their phones uh, or onto their laptop or iPads. Mm -hmm. So the seed company, which is in turn, because they have that trusted relationship with the farmers in Australia, they're agronomists, they're also the ones basically training farmers on how to use this information. And we have a revenue share agreement with the seed company.
0: We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor Yetter Farm Equipment for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's y e t t e r c o.com. And now back to the podcast. How does a specific farmer's practices, for instance, if somebody's doing no-till, if they use cover crops, maybe specific, you know, they're using cereal rye and they plant it in the fall, how do those factors play into um, how your recommendations would play out.
1: Sure. So that's the beauty of machine learning model. Uh, if we have historical six or seven years of data available, you know, on on not only the historical yields, the seed varieties and, and the economic practices that these farmers used, mm. model will be able to identify the linkages between uh, extreme weather risk and the likely yield of quality outcomes for the farmers. Mm-hmm. So if someone is practicing more resilient practices, such as no till, as you said, uh, or better soil health practices, it would show up in the response that the crop has to these uh, in, you know, external stresses because of weather. So we developed this tool internally, uh, where taking into account, as I said, soil type, soil type uh, location, historical weather, and the, the outlook for the next season, we can recommend the portfolio of seed varieties that short season long season uh, that these farmers can plant so that they receive like a guaranteed yield outcome no matter how the weather turns out to be having said that we also realize the practicalities of it and you know it's it's all about building trust with the farmers so we want to work with the seed companies in deploying it over let's say five percent or ten percent of the farm if it shows results then we you know uh, then farmers can deploy it over all of their farm but we We just don't want to act arrogant and tell farmers what to do. They know what to do well really with their farms. We are just there to enable them to sort of uh, equip them with the right data tools to do that.
0: And so I guess I'm just thinking from a farmer's point of view, they want to be able to use this tool and start populating data on this platform. Um, Where do they go? How do they find out who's working with you? What's sort of the baseline amount of information that's useful for them to be inputting into your system for that historical data
1: you know i would say like a you know very counterintuitive thing trust your seed advisors trust your chemical advisor crop advisors and typically our method of working is like let's build a trust with a seed company first so that they try our technology for like one season two seasons they get built that trust and then they feel comfortable taking it to their customers in this case as growers that's the best route for us. This is what we prefer as well. So you'll see like in Australia now, as I mentioned to you, the canola farmers are uh, starting to use our platform uh, with Pacific Seeds because they already have that trust. And because seeds Company trust us and they can go and, you know, their agron- agronomists can recommend the same to the farmers. We'll have the same channel of deployment in the US and Europe as well. As I said, always rely on people who you trust. And if that, and because we, as I mentioned, we, we are very careful about not breaking that trust with the farmers. Mm-hmm. Because trust takes, as you say, like, trust takes like uh, uh, years to build and minutes to destroy. True. Especially in a predictive analytics business, if you're not uh, explaining the context of how to best use these predictive technologies, it can then end up harming, uh, you know, a particular farmer and helping them.
0: And then, you know, of course, more data seems like it's always better, but is there certain, like, a farmer would be expected to uh, input Three years of data, or something like that, to sort of get that baseline established.
1: Uh, in the first step, we don't require any farmer level data. Okay. Um, and there are these in-house indices that we have, or decision-making tools that we have built, which is based on farmers have to input the lat long, latitude and longitude of their farm, mm-hmm. and the crop type. Let's say their canola, corn, uh, or permanent crops, or what have you. And they can start uh, receiving uh, insights and actionable insights from a tool right away. So, A, they don't need to input their data uh, in the first season. You see the performance of the platform for the first two seasons and three seasons, and then you can start doing like, okay, if I input more data, then that might lead to even better outcomes for the rec- you know, as far as the recommendations from this platform, platform.
0: Is there anything else that uh, you would like to talk
1: about? I think there have been a lot of announcements in COP26 by the Biden administration. And I, if I'm not wrong, around $50 billion or more has been allocated for agriculture. So I, I saw that plan. I think it's a very ambitious plan uh, and, and it's come at the right time. But there is there are a few things which are missing from that plan. And, and I define them in, in three words, which is 3Ds, definition, data, and diffusion. So uh, the plan is based on like, the uh, so plan sort of talks about uh, encouraging climate smart agriculture in the U.S., and promoting resilient practices so how do you define resilient practices what is resilient uh, is it based on uh, is it aligned with income resilience of the farmers or is it aligned with yield resilience of the farmers or or what so, so that's one so there's a lack of clarity on definition second is the data unless we have you know a right channel of data ingestion within usda and and vice versa a great communication of like data transfer and Data monitoring and availability from farmers to USDA and vice versa is very hard to determine what practices are climate smart and what practices are leading to uh, you know a resilient outcome or not. And, and third is diffusion. So there's been so much of money allocated. Uh, you know the plan talks about this money will go to USDA climate hubs that will drive the implementation and of these decision making tools to the farmers. But then it's not the first time that USDA climate hub has been doing that. Right. they were set up exactly for the same reason. Uh, they have developed these climate smart tools for the last uh, 10 years and 12 years. They're really bright scientists working in there. But it's, it's worth investigating how much of those tools have actually been used by the farmers. And, and if not, what are the reasons why those tools were not used and not been successful? So without recognizing like, so I talked about diffusion process. How do you diffuse uh, the impact of funding all to the farmers, right? Uh, without investigating why it has not been that successful, I think there needs to be a better layout of, you know, the plan based on the three things that I identified, like definition, data, and diffusion.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it hinges on the fact, I think, that most of the plans have always been voluntary, and I think they need to be voluntary. You know, farmers don't want to be mandated to make changes, yeah. but and they will do things when it's in, in their best interest as well as the, the climate. But as you say, the impact, the overall impact is, do you feel like your platform has the ability to bring that all together and address the fact that the policies and the practices that have been implemented have not been that effective?
1: So I wouldn't say like, I mean, policy and mandates have their own, I would say, importance and role to play. Mm -hmm. But as you said, they cannot mandate and tell any farmer what to do, right? Our objective is on the other side is to create those, market-driven incentives for the private sector or the agri businesses you know all the way from seed companies to fertilizer companies to food processors so that they invest in the resilience of the farmers yeah so when they invest in the resilience of the farmers of course the farmers see like better outcomes but also the food companies and the food processors or the seed companies see better top line and bottom line Mm -hmm. and to your point uh julia as you said Farmers will do if something is in the best interest, mm-hmm. and it's exactly the kind of um, mechanism we want to create. That if, let's say, the seed company deploys a platform that I talked about with uh, hundreds of thousands of farmers in Australia, mentioning that uh, this platform is going to lead to better outcomes for you uh, in terms of yields, but also will allow us to serve you better. And and that is exactly our our motive. The second thing around, like the second point, is around no matter whether we are on two degrees or four degrees global warming pathways, as we talk about, climate change is already here, right? And even with 1.2 degrees, our first priority has to be the adaptation, adaptation of farmers in agriculture, both in developed economies as well as developing economies. And, and the way it's showing up, as I talked about, is, of course, reduction, in, you know, increase in extreme weather events around the agriculture growing regions globally, but also shifts in, in the suitability of uh, growing crops, so there are some areas coming up which are becoming suitable for growing, let's say, wine grapes or corn, which were not before, and the existing areas uh, are becoming unsuitable. So our, our objective is like, as the shift is happening, how do we ensure that the farmers are at the benefiting end of the shift mm-hmm. through right. market-driven incentives? Like we don't want to uh, basically, we don't expect governments to mandate anything. All we expect is is basically to policy and, and, and the plans to become an enablers
0: mm-hmm. okay. uh,
1: for the transition.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, and you had mentioned um, incentives, and you had mentioned something earlier about processors perhaps rewarding more resilient yeah. practices. So is that something that you actually foresee happening? And and what other incentives do you foresee companies using?
1: it's already happening i think as you know carbon markets have become uh you know the talk of the town because there's good enough demand uh for carbon credits based on uh you know the soil sequestered carbon so from companies like microsoft uh and unilevers of the world as well as there are the the players in the value chain in, in, in we're talking about uh seed companies and 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 food processors who want to enable farmers to take benefit out of it but also it Helps these companies become a better, you know, uh, improve their brand positioning to their customers. So, so, that transition is already happening. What we need to ensure that is this transition is permanent, uh, is measurable, as well as you know, a more of this value is transferred to the farmers. So, um, if you if you if you look at like, I, I, I came from uh, climate and energy supply chain to uh, farming supply chain. I was so surprised to see that. Farming supply chain is the only supply chain where producers, in this case farmers, don't have a pricing power at all. Mm -hmm. If you look at oil and gas supply chains, Saudi Arabia tribes can basically manipulate the price of of oil globally, Mm -hmm. they are producing that. In this case, farmers are basically at the receiving end of the price. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two is, while um, they are the only stakeholder in the agriculture supply chain who are least diversified. So, as an example, a seed company might be selling to farmers globally. Uh, a food processor might be sourcing from six different regions. So, so even if there's a drought in one region, decreasing yields there, uh, food you know the food processor is covered. But a farmer, if they end up uh, losing their yields for the for the season, they're only selling to one food company uh, or one market, right? So they're the most vulnerable and exposed to to climate risk and. That to me was, coming from a different sector, uh, was very surprising.
0: Thanks to Himanshu Gupta of Climate AI for this discussion about leveraging climate intelligence for better no-till results. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit no-tillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlock at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlock. Thanks for tuning in.